Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can the best way possible while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title, you get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. Vered, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's a pleasure to have you here in the middle of this whole uh, global pandemic. You are COO, so there's probably so many fires you need to put out in so many places. We'll get to all of them. Yeah, but before we do so, let's kick it off with the basics. Who are you? What do you do? And why do you do it? So I'm Vered, uh, CEO and president of Guesty. Guesty is a software tool for end-to-end management of short-term rentals. Why do I do it? Guesty is my fifth startup. I love that part of uh, taking a product that already has that perfect product market fit. You know who you're selling to. You know what the vision is. And it's really about scaling it and making it into an empire. So this is your, your third global catastrophe? In a sense, yeah. I, I still remember um, sitting in the office. I was at Radward then and seeing uh, the plane smash into uh, the mm-hmm. twins. And it was like, whoa, what's going on here? And uh, it had a huge impact on our business, on all the businesses around the world. Had the 2008 uh, crisis where at that time it was at MediaMind, were just about to go public. And then 2008 happened and Lehman Brothers that were supposed to be the underwriters for IPO went under. So that was like my second crisis. Wow. And now a global pandemic, which I said to a lot of people around me, you know what? I thought I've been to a lot of things, but that's a first for me. How close were you to, to the actual IPO date? 
Oh, we were very close. We were, uh, I mean, we didn't do pricing yet, but it was like we had the prospectus. We had everything. And again, all of a sudden from a hyper growth company, it was going back to the drawing board, thinking of, of pay cuts, thinking of how to uh, make the business more efficient because we don't know where we're going. We're probably going to miss our results for the first time in our 10 years of existence. So it was, yeah, it's, it's, I think a lot of what we see in startups in general with a pandemic, without a pandemic, uh, you have to be very agile. You have to understand that even if you have a very rigid plan, it might just not happen and you have to rethink it and redo it. And I think it's part of being in that world. If you can't adjust very quickly to a changing environment, you probably should work in a bank or somewhere more stable. You, you, I don't know if a bank is stable right now. But. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. But how long were you in the IPO process? So you've been working on it for how long when, when Lehman Brothers collapsed? For about a year. Wow. Yeah. So a year-long project. That's basically the first milestone was getting to the IPO and then the business changes. Yeah. And then you have to go back to the drawing board. But it's not that you go back to the drawing board and you can pick it up from where you left. The whole financial landscape had changed. Right. So it's not that you can go back to VCs and start raising money again because everyone was experiencing challenges. What was the moment where you realized, okay, this IPO is not going to happen? Can you go back to that moment? I think it was very clear to us that it's not going to happen. It was a very clear path when uh, the crisis began in 2008. I think, I don't remember exactly when we knew Lehman Brothers is going under, but it wasn't, I think it was like a month of uh, a lot of anxiety and then realizing that it's gone. But luckily for us, we had great support from our investors. Uh, we had a solid business. Okay, we had a good product. We had customers. We understood it's not going to be in the pace that we, we wanted it to be, but we knew we had something real. And it allowed us to really take a step back, make decisions, some of them painful decisions of letting people go, for example, but uh, having a plan to go on. And luckily for us, two years later, we went public. Then a year later, sold the company for twice of the IPO price. And uh, there was a happy ending. But you always have to go through the highs and lows in a startup, right? It's never easy. It's never simple. I can't think of one experience I had where everything was perfect and we were just, you know, yeah, everything's great. Sales are great. Investors are just chasing us for giving us money. No, that doesn't happen, right? It's always difficult. I think of Fiverr now with the amazing success, really. I'm, I'm so proud of the team there and what they've accomplished. And remember us chasing investors to get another round, right? And now you can say, wow, they're probably sitting at home looking at that $4 billion company and saying, how did I miss out on that? But you always have those phases in a company's life where things are uh, not clear and you are unsure of your way and you still have to hang in there and say, okay, it's a tough day, a tough week or a tough year and I'm going to go on uh, because I believe in what I'm doing. When did you realize you have what it takes to succeed in startups? I don't think that there's like a minute where you say I have what it takes to succeed. Uh, I think it's a personality issue in, in, in many cases. Um, I mentioned agility, which I think is really the number one quality you need as a COO or as anyone that wants to be a part of a scale process. There are so many unknowns along the way of a startup. If you're not 
ready to think quickly, act quickly, take decisions. I think decision-making is, is, is crucial, right? You can't just sit there and wait and think and stall. No, you have to make decisions all the time. You have to take decisions every day. And if you're not good at it, you're not quick at it, you're not sure of yourself, it's, it's very problematic. So the, the wait state, the standstill, when you're not acting on a plan, some plan, this is, where, this is where a lot of the anxiety rises and a lot of startups fall. Right. How would you get the, uh, we're going very deep, very, very quickly, but does the, uh, when you become an executive, does the balance of working in the business, you know, still in the Excel sheets, still in the trenches, still meeting customers or whatever it is that the, the business needs, and does the other part of working on the business, how do you balance that? First of all, I think you should always be hands-on as an executive. I don't believe in just managing the team, getting reports, and not doing anything. You have to meet the customers. Even you as a CEO to... of a 400-people company. Definitely, definitely. You have to know the product. You have to know the product in and out. You have to know what you're talking about. You have to meet the customers. When I talk to investors, if I want to be genuine, I know what I'm talking about, right? And if I don't know the product enough, I don't know the customer, I don't know the competitive landscape, I can't really represent my company. And I also think it keeps you on your toes to actually do work, to actually sit in product meetings, to meet customers, partners, talk to them, understand their pains, uh, get their feedback. I think the more immersed you are in your company and your product, the better you are as an executive. But of course, the, the balance of it is that you also have to know where to let go. Right? You can't just be the trenches and do the work for your employees. Then you'll be a lousy manager. Right? You have to empower them. You have to know when to take a step back and let them do the work, even if they make mistakes. Making mistakes is a part of what you have to do as a manager, as a mentor. Allow your team to make those mistakes as long as they're manageable. Okay, You're not going to let them create a catastrophe for the company, but sometimes... And I had this with, with several employees that said, I think we should do X. And I said, well, you know what? I wouldn't do that. I would do Y. But if you really believe in X and you can show me why you think X is the right solution, great. And I had cases where we did a retrospect and I told them, thinking about it again, did you, were you supposed to choose X or Y? And he said, you know what? We didn't make the right decision. And we analyzed that and we understand why they didn't take the right decision and what they should think about next time a dilemma like that arises. And they learn from it and they grow from it. And that's what you have to do as an executive. Have a team that you allow to grow and even replace you at a certain point in time. I don't know if you if you feel the same way about what I'm going to say. And, and our, you know, we only know each other very superficially, but it feels to me like people who work with you always feel like you have time for them. You will hear them out all the way through. Um, you're very present. Given everything, all the balls that you're juggling, I mean, that's such an amazing trait. How do you create that feeling? Is it even, you know, conscious? I think it's just about caring. Caring for people, caring uh, to hear them out. I always believe that you get wiser by listening to other people. I always tell employees when when we come to negotiations that before you start talking just listen okay listen to the other party hear what they have to say hear what they want to offer hear what 
bothers them. And then you can have a, a better decision. You can negotiate in a better way. And uh, I think listening is, is a trait. And, and, but I really think it, it's, again, it comes from a certain personality. I care about people. I have many friends and I care about them. I have friends from, you know, 20 and 30 years ago that I, I keep on, you know, seeing and meeting and hosting for dinner and, and helping out. Uh, when they're in time of need. And I think that's the part of the person I am. And I hope that my employees feel the same, that I'm there for them and I really care. I care about their success. I care about their development. And I think it, it creates a great relationship where we're out there for each other. How did the workforce change in terms of uh, the employees you're working with in the 20 years you're in the business? Um, are they better prepared, more suited for the type of work they're doing, less... What is it like now? It seems to me like the they're just getting smarter. <laughs> I think a lot of the traits that are relevant for today's world were not relevant 20 years ago. Some are, right? Like relationships, what we just talked about, it's always relevant. And knowing how to motivate a team, knowing how to convince people, how to make your case, how to engage is super important. There are just different tools and ways to do it. Everything around the digital world wasn't really present 20 years ago. So, But I think a main difference I see with uh, the younger generation of employees is that they, they want to do so much. They want to evolve. They, wanna, they don't think of their career as something that's going to remain for the next 20 years. After every year, they think, okay, what's my next goal? What's my next step? They, sometimes it's a bit too quick. I think sometimes you, you need to... Uh, understand that in order to be a professional, you need some time. You need to go through a certain road and and experience a few things before you can really feel you're an expert and you can go to the next phase. But still, I think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of beauty in in that passion uh, for doing more, knowing more, getting ahead. So yeah, I meet a lot of talents every day. Let me, uh, let me try and approach it from another angle as well. Back in the day, you know, an apprenticeship, an internship, just let me work with the smartest people. Let me let them walk me to the bone. Essentially, I want to I download their brains, their expertise, and I'll do that for as long as it takes to become an expert and then take that and implement it in my own business. That was one way to go. Where today, I feel like it's almost like a box-ticking exercise. Launch a product, open a market, work with the R&D team, Tick, tick, tick. I'm ready to go to the next thing. Is that an advantage or a disadvantage? Well, I think it's a disadvantage because uh, I, I remember I had this uh, product guy, very talented. And after a year, he came to us and said, well, I launched my first product. So now I know everything there is to know about launching a product and I want to do something else. And you don't become a product expert by just launching one product or one feature, right? It's there are so many experiences. There are so many different angles to it, so many different perspectives. So sometimes I think people are too quick to make a decision that they're ready for the next phase. I think that you should take that passion and use it to experience as much as possible and take as many perspectives as possible, but not just, you know, think that you know everything too soon. How would you know that it's the right time as a manager? You see, your, uh, you see your employees. When would you know that, okay, this is the time to help this person move on to their next role or, or get promoted? What are the indicators you're after? 
first of all, I think not, although most of them want to get ahead very quickly, not all of them do. Sometimes they need to build up their confidence. Unfortunately, I feel that there is a gender gap there as well. I see more men that just, you know, want to get to the next phase very quickly. And I see more women that say, well, I'm not sure I'm ready to, to jump at that uh, new challenge. And I really try to work on that with the uh, with women I work with to to make sure they, they build that confidence and feel that they're ready for their next uh, step. Because sometimes they're just not that vocal advocates for themselves as some of the the guys. So I think it's it's not a, a certain checkbox or something I can check. It's about a balance of, of two things mainly. One is the professional side and one is also the management side. I have uh, some great people that really know their their role, they're experts at what they do, but they're not good managers. And sometimes they think that the only way to get promoted is to become a manager. And that's not necessarily the right thing. Maybe they should find a way to really refine their expertise and take on a broader professional role and not necessarily manage people because that's not what they're good at. On the other hand, I don't think you should be promoted as a manager if you don't have that basic professional proficiency that will allow you really mentor and empower your team in the right way. So I think those are the two main aspects of the, the professional experience and knowledge and skills, and then the management skills and leadership skills on the other hand. So on the negative of that, what are some of the indications that you would see in someone who is just too anxious to get ahead, but with very low self-awareness in terms of where they really are on their journey. How would you as a manager say, okay, this is a, something that needs to be tackled? I really believe in transparency. I don't sugarcoat things for, for my employees. I mean, I'm polite. I, don't, I won't say anything in a, in, a, in a blunt or nasty way, but I think it's important to put that mirror and say, listen, you're really not ready for XYZ, and this is why. When you explain it to them and also set the goals to them, the milestones together, like not just say, no, you're not going to get this role. No, you're not ready. But saying, listen, I think what you're missing in order to be ready for this new challenge is work on your management skills or be more accurate in the way you work or look at, you know, those Two last reviews and what I told you, I think you still haven't improved in those areas where I asked you to improve. And once you get there, I'll be with you. I'll take your hand and uh, walk with you to get to that next uh, phase, that next milestone. Then people appreciate it. And uh, I think that when you're transparent and trustworthy, hopefully, people believe in you and walk that extra mile with you and say, okay. I understand I'm not going to get it now. You think how you think I need another 6 months? Great. Let's 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 do that work in the next 6 months and see if if I can get to that milestone. So you find people are receptive of that um, open, honest to the point type of communication. I am, and by the way, if they're not, it means something. I mean, if you're not mature enough to get feedback, to get another perspective, to listen to others, then maybe you're not mature enough for that next milestone. And I did have cases where people, you know, didn't. Uh, it was difficult for them to accept that feedback. 
Okay, he said, no, I think I'm great. I, I got that too. And uh, again, I think in most cases, uh, they were receptive and did accept it and worked with me. And a lot of the times they, they, they achieved their, their milestones and their goals by, you know, walking that road with me. Uh, but there were cases where, you know, few cases where people said, no, I think I should be, a, you know, a VP now, even though I have one year of experience. And I said, well, good luck. And, yeah. <laughs> By the way, sometimes people think that, you know, uh, the title is, is, is everything, right? So they, and they don't understand that being a VP in a 10 people company might be less than being a director in a 400 people company. Taking it to your world as a CEO, it was one of the first C-suite executives you see in startups. Some of the uh, most famous executives in the world are COO, Sheryl Sandberg being one example. And my question to you is, what is a COO? Yeah, I've been asked that a lot. And I think that the, the best answer is that there isn't a real answer to what is a COO. A COO is different for every company, for every organization. It depends on who the CEO is, and it depends on who the COO is and what they want to bring into that role. I think you can bring different things to that role. And that's why you see CEOs that are more on the technical side, CEOs that are more on the sales and marketing side, and CEOs like me that are more on the operational side. What's common to everyone is their ability to help the company scale and mature and really have that holistic approach to the company, thinking of all the different aspects, whether they report directly to you or whether they report to someone else. I feel myself um, responsible for the overall organization and the overall growth of the company. I love that because if you have a CMO, chief marketing officer, of course, they advocate for their marketing, be it budgets, execution power, hiring, whatever it is. You take the CTO, of course, the priorities are that. Hire more developers. Let's say, let's do more of this or more of that. And the CEO is the champion of the company. Yeah, I think it's, you know, we talked about personality. As a CEO, you want everyone to win, okay? You want everyone to shine and their success is your success. If you're very competitive, if you only want to think of your goals and uh, your position, it's difficult to take on that role. You should take that role when you have that, uh, maybe selfless is, is a little too much, but kind of a selfless approach of like, I'm going to do whatever it takes for the company to succeed, not for me to succeed. And that means a huge variability in the type of work you're doing and the projects you're doing. Um, talk to us a little bit about the different worlds that you're involved in within the company context. So at Guesty, I manage most of the customer facing uh, teams, but not on the sales side, but on the support side. So the customer solutions, what others call support, uh, guest communications, uh, customer success team, the legal team, the HR team, the operations team, and strategic partnerships and finance. <laughs> yeah, does, sometimes they have out? to say yeah. one, two, three. It's difficult. Yeah, so, so it's a uh, lot. Within the, the the sales org is not under you, the marketing yeah. world, and and basically the tech side. Right. It's easier okay. to say what I don't manage. I don't manage sales and marketing, and I don't manage uh, product R and D. So we have a CTO, and we have sales and marketing that report to the CEO. And what are the types of projects that you can we can find you spearheading? 
anything around the customer journey and about understanding how to care for our customers. Uh, we talked about talking to customers. Uh, I do that all the time as well. I try to meet customers in conferences or, or travels. I champion certain customers um, because, again, I think it's a part of my role to understand uh, the customer needs in order to help the departments that are supporting our customers. That's one thing. Everything around, um, since since I handle uh, legal and operations, it's also everything around the investment rounds and managing the boards and investors and uh, uh, everything uh, in that world, which is, again, completely different. Then uh, when I say HR, we have uh, a great VP of HR and a great team. But the way I see it as my responsibility, really looking at the overall organization, understanding how it should scale, how it should grow, if it's opening additional offices, when I joined Guesty two years ago, we only had the Tel Aviv office and started outsourcing in Manila. Um, and after a year, we had eight new offices uh, in Europe, wow. in the US, in Sydney. And it was not just about offices, about building a global organization that supports enterprise customers, uh, something we didn't have in the past. So within two years, expanded into eight territories? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's... Mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's, that's something I... Sometimes find themselves that they you know, die at the first territory. Uh, uh, okay, so that's fascinating. Let's park that because I think it's worth double-clicking on and speaking at length because uh, international expansion is such a, such a huge topic. Let me uh, ask uh, a few more questions around the COO world. Does every company need a COO? Not necessarily. As I said, since it has different... roles, responsibilities, positions in the organization. It really depends on the personas that you have in the founding team. Sometimes one of the founders uh, will be the COO and one will be the CEO. Sometimes you have a CFO that has, you know, a lot of operational skills and covers for some of the COO roles. Sometimes you have a CEO that is very, you know, operational, not just a visionary and They feel that they should uh, do a lot of that work and they hire maybe someone at a lower level, like a, it could be a VP operations, it could be a chief of staff or something like that. And, and they feel that they can handle it definitely at the early stages of the company. I think you need a COO when you get to that growth stage of maybe round B or round C where, you know, it, you really feel it's getting out of control. You have too many employees, too many offices. Too many things to handle and you're not sure how to do that and then I think it does make sense to take an expert in scale in systems in building an organization to help you kind of make oh. a structure out of it all yeah. it sounds to me like the COO and speaking from the little experience I have is that it's executive firepower on demand so in a way you the special projects person. We need some executive attention, someone with a holistic view uh, that can make decisions, that see the, the, the upside for the business and then just throw them into that uh, arena, be it global expansion, be it processes, overhaul, system implementation, hypergrowth, crisis resolution. Is that a fair description of what CEO, CEOs are expected to do? 
I don't see it quite like that. I think some CEOs are like that, especially the younger ones, I would say. Sometimes like you get into a company at an early stage and you're tasked with all these different projects because no one knows what to do. And you know what? You'll do it. And it's not big uh, enough to, to like be a full-time role. Right. So I, I think that you see it in a younger organization where they have that person that just does everything uh, no one really knows how to take care of. If you watch Silicon Valley, that's like the CEO there, right? What's his name? I forgot. But I think the way I position myself, it's not about like being tasked with different projects thrown at you at you. You have to be ready in advance and know what these projects are going to be. Do the planning in advance, know how you want to build and scale the organizations and have a roadmap of those projects and tasks ahead of you. So it shouldn't be thrown at you and you shouldn't just be doing stuff because no one wants to do them. You should be managing the process. You should be initiating uh, the projects. You should be having that road ahead, uh, that vision of where the company should be going and how to build the right infrastructure for its growth. Does the proactive COO, which is forward-looking, process-driven, they find they understand where the company is at, benchmark it, and then they set KPIs and processes to reach those KPIs. And then you have the reactive COOs who are basically, in a way, and I'm not saying this in a, in a, in a negative way at all, but let's clear the other executives to focus on what they need to do and take those things off of their plate. If the CEO needs to raise money, let them raise the money. I'll deal with everything else. Mm-hmm. If the CMO needs to uh, needs to execute on a, whatever client execution, a client acquisition, then don't worry. I'll make sure that sales and marketing are aligned with the systems and stuff. Yeah, well, you always have to be reactive. I talked about agility. Uh, so, uh, of course, you have to be reactive because things happen all the time when you least expect them. But uh, I think you should come into this role with a proactive approach of having a vision having a roadmap in mind, knowing where you think the company should be going and how to really lead the way there and not just be reactive to things that happen. Bringing us into present day, Guesty is a, is a short-term property management software. I mean, geez, the amount of plans and plan Bs and Cs that you probably had to manufacture in the last six months. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how you entered 2020, what was the forecast projection, and then how it all came to be what it is today. We started uh, 2020 very optimistic. Uh, We raised our uh, C round led by Viola in early uh, 19, in March, April 19. Um, So we just raised uh, $35 million. We reached 2020 without even touching that money and had great plans for almost doubling our revenue again after we doubled it in previous years uh, in 2020. And it started uh, wonderful with actually exceeding the goal in January. Then started seeing the, it wasn't a pandemic back then, it was just beginning of the coronavirus in APAC. Started monitoring it carefully, saw it move from APAC to Europe, uh, it's funny, I remember when we talked to customers in the U.S. in February and said, listen, did you start seeing any impact? And they said, 
no, no, it's not here. It's, we're not worried about it. Everything's fine. We don't need anything. And it was only mid-March where the U.S. market started realizing that they have a problem. What we did well, I think, is we understood where this is going. And in February, started talking about it and figuring what we should do in case this continues to deteriorate, which meant that by early March, we crafted a plan uh, of cost reduction and uh, changes as a result of the pandemic, which we implemented uh, in mid-March. So even in a hugely uh, reactive situation where such a thing happens and you need to adapt to it, being able to try and stay ahead of the curve, come up with a contingency plan so that that fell on your lap as a COO. Right. Got it. Right. So I, I, I'm very proud of what we did. We were um, very realistic. We acted quickly. And I think it allowed us to take measures that were not as drastic as other companies because we reacted early, all right? So think about it. If, if we cut, uh, I don't know, we um, had about I think, 12, 13% uh, employees go on unpaid leave, other companies had 25% or more on unpaid leave because they didn't react as quickly as us. So we took some measures. We also had contingency plans for phase two and phase three in case we don't see a recovery. So going into uh, the board discussions uh, in March and April, we had three plans for uh, what we call the doomsday scenario. Sales are like horrible and everything's bad and it's down here. Better scenario where things are not as bad, but not really good. And an optimistic scenario, which was still negative. It was not what we expected, but relatively optimistic. And we actually had plans, including cost reductions or rehiring uh, for the three phases, the, the three plans. And we just monitored those plans on a weekly basis and understand where we were going and understand if we can increase expenses, reduce expenses, leave them as is. Do we have enough visibility going forward, etc.? It's tedious. It's difficult. But it allows us to be very conservative and weather the storm. And I'm happy to say that the results were better than what we expected. So we thought, wow, it's just going to be close to zero. I remember one of our board members saying, well, you have to project zero sales in Q2. And I said, no, it's not going to be zero. Okay, it's going to be low. And we had you know, a discussion around how low it should be. But it wasn't close to zero, okay? Uh, uh, one of the reasons was that domestic travel actually picked up really quickly. And a lot of the short-term rentals are, you know, domestic. So all in all, we're in a better position than we expected. But still, it, it means a delay of at least one year. We don't know when it's going to be over. It's it's at least one year of delay in our plans. And I think the the interesting lesson for me is that I've never had to plan with zero visibility. Okay, just zero. You have no idea what's going to happen next month. And it's a it's an interesting drill, definitely. We had uh, Leon Vigad, the owner and CEO of the Brown Hotels, and he came in and he shared how, how COVID impacted them. And he goes, we're like, how did it, it, it affect the business? And he's, well... Our turnover is 20 million shekels in Israel. It's 20 million shekels uh, monthly. In May, it was zero. <laughs> <laughs> okay. June was about 1 million, you know, and, and 
some businesses absolutely came to a halt and approaching such a calamity with a plan B and C, it's very assuring. It's very, very assuring. What does your um, war room look like when you're in a crisis like that? Who's on your speed dial? What's your toolbox to handling a situation like that? First of all, we did have a war room um, with a um, legal HR um, and also uh, in many respects, the entire management team that was present because everybody had to look at their department and make the necessary changes and cuts. So it was the plan, then it was the messaging, then it was uh, reacting to press and you know, questions from customers and questions from partners. Um, again, I felt that we, we got a lot of the heat because we we're first to react. Um, so, for example, there was press about the, you know, uh, the employees and unpaid leave, which I felt is like, guys, it's a pandemic. And like, what do you want us to do? It's like we really did the minimum we could uh, to preserve the business. I felt that if we weren't the first to react, maybe we would not get that heat that we did. I think at a certain point in time, everybody realized that, you know, what we did was obvious and the right thing to do and uh, and the bare minimum we could do. Uh, but it was not an easy time to go uh, through that. I think what, what we saw with the team, with everyone, was really creating that resilience of, okay, we have to make do with what we have. Uh, our marketing team did a fabulous job of really moving to virtual all around. We, we had, uh, from the time the pandemic started, we had over 20 virtual events with huge audiences around I don't know, 1,000 to 2,000 registrants in each event, getting great leads, uh, making the most out of it. Uh, our customer success team uh, really helped customers think through their strategies, weather the storm, understand how they can reach new audiences, how they can move to domestic audiences, for example. I can really go one by one in every department, uh, made the relevant changes uh, and including the the different approach and perspective necessary for uh, a new world. And it really allowed us to be very successful relative to what we could during a pandemic. When you talk about it, it sounds more exciting than, than depressing. You know, it, it makes me like it, it has a sense of like this dynamism that, that for me, I'm like, geez, I, I would have loved to be there. Yeah, I think we, we we say, I don't know, if I had a dollar for every time we said we were going to make lemonade out of lemons, uh, <laughs> we wouldn't need to raise any money anymore. That's the motto but, of summer 2020. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really think we did that. I think we, we managed to um, get the entire team behind this idea of, okay, this is not just a, a, a challenge. This is an opportunity. And how do we make it an opportunity? And how do we actually get better results than we could have without the pandemic what are the advantages of the pandemic for us and the the you know going virtual was one of them right understanding what the customer needs are in in time of crisis allowed us to approach customers that maybe didn't think about us before and again i'm not going to tell you everything is fine and dandy and, and perfect no but i i do think that we all feel we learned a lot and we achieved new goals 
uh, going through this. And I think there's a sense of pride in all of us that being right in the eye of the storm, being a travel tech company in a time of a global con pandemic, we are pulling through, we are taking new initiatives, we are uncovering new opportunities. I, yeah, I think there's a lot to be proud of. It sounds remarkable. And part of the reason we brought you here was to share that side of the story, not just how we coped with the catastrophe, but also what, what's the upside. And that's, and that's where the COO switching on to very uh, action-oriented mode, connecting the dots, making sure you're there and you're strong for, for, for your teams. And where the person, did you feel you were tested in these uh, last few months? And if so, how? What were the testing moments? I don't ever feel tested. It's like not my thing to feel tested. I think I have a lot of responsibility. I'm responsible not just for me. I'm responsible uh, for my employees, for my investors, for my partners, for my customers. I feel the weight of that. And I always try to do what's best for all parties involved. I think that I'm not at the stage where I, I, I worry about my personal brand or my personal perception. I think I've earned enough through the years not to feel I need to be tested. So I really have a very clear mind where I think of the benefit of all the relevant stakeholders in the company and how I can impact them. How does that come across in your managerial style? Do you have a, what does a day look like in that regard? Management teams, stand-ups with your directs? I have weeklies with all my directs. I also have weeklies with some employees that are not my direct reports, other management members that are not reporting to me. We have team meetings about different issues, different uh, tasks. For example, we, have, uh, we had a management offsite as a result of that. We made some decisions, including uh, using this time of the pandemic to improve a lot of internal processes, internal communications. With the pandemic, you have to communicate differently, right? You have to work remotely. And we invested a lot in thinking how to do that in a more effective way. What can we learn from that in order to improve the, the handshakes, the journey, of different tasks within the different departments in the company. So that's just one example of, of, of things we care about and we, we think about. I think a lot about being a COO and an executive in general is empowerment. Is I, I told that to one of my employees that's a manager. Managing a team is not the same as managing managers. And you have to know the difference. You have to know how to give them... Uh, tools to be successful and not tell them what to do. Otherwise, they don't evolve and they won't have that autonomy of being a manager and developing their team. So I really try to allow my team to work and give them direction, be there for them in time of need and not just tell them exactly what to do. So it sounds like you've created this... Um ecosystem around you that informs your decisions, that makes sure that you are able to spend the time you need with the different people in order to support them the way they need to be supported. And it brings me to ask you about context switching. What advice would you have to people who are finding themselves having to do a lot of context switching but are struggling to change their personas or struggling to contain themselves when making those transitions? I think it takes some work. 
when it comes naturally, it's great. When it doesn't, you have to write your task, get, you know, first of all, make sure that you have that time to prepare. Don't do one hour meetings, do 50 uh, minute meeting and take 10 uh, minutes to decompress, to get reorganized, to breathe, to think about your next position or your next... Uh, Be intentional about it. Yeah, but understanding that you're now preparing for a meeting with a customer, you're now preparing for a meeting with an employee, you're now preparing for a board meeting. If you need that time, take that time, put it in your calendar. Again, preparation is key. I, I think when I was younger, I would prepare more. I would, if I had a presentation, I would present it to myself or to the mirror a few times before I went on stage. Now I don't have to do that. But I used to do that when I was younger. If I had to go through a tough negotiation, I would role play it and think, okay, what are the questions that could arise? Just I think that the less experience you have, the more uh, preparation you need to think about. It's kind of like jazz players who say that they rehearse their entire life to be able to improvise. Yeah, right. So I guess that's a, the intentional preparation, respecting the context switching with giving it the buffer, you know, just switch mentally. I think that for me, what helps is not to carry a lot of admin, a lot of open tabs in my, in my head. So if I finish a meeting, I'll try and do the follow-up immediately after. So I don't have it running in the back of my head in the next meeting. And I don't think about finishing that meeting to complete these other tasks. So really spacing it out. The clarity and the well-being you get from not condensing too much into a day, I think, is a, is a huge advantage. And it comes across. Now I want to ask you about professional management in startups. So, of course, where you are at today, you know, you can speak about that at length, um, given your experience. But we've also discussed the, the point where we promote people who, you know, they're not at the stage where they have to be, they should be people manager. They were just promoted into that role because of, a, because of the necessity, because they were the only one there, or they were there long enough. So the question is, what is your opinion around the current state of mid-management in startups, specifically in Israel? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Generally speaking, first of all, I think we're, we're evolving. The, the entire startup nation is evolving. You see companies that are more mature today. You see, I remember when I started my career, It was said that all Israeli startups are like uh, being developed to be sold to American companies. Like none of them stay independent when they reach a certain size. That's not true today. Look at Wix and, 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 and Fiverr and other companies that have grown immensely and, and became um, mature companies. I think we see more and more of that in Israel, which leads uh, a new generation of managers to be more mature and be able to To uh, grow a next generation and and help them mature as well, I think we invest much more in in HR uh, tools and abilities and in mentoring and training uh, middle management and allowing them to get the skills required to grow. Uh, I know we invest at Gesty we invest a lot in our middle management. We believe in them. We help them mature to their next uh, step. Uh, I'm Happy to say that we see a lot of internal promotions in the company. I always advocate for that when possible. Of course, you have to do it when it's possible, when it's right, not just because someone's already there. Sometimes the promotion within is not the right way to go, and you're actually just going to harm that person that you're trying to help, right? I think that putting someone in the wrong position could be devastating to their career. They could fail. They could lose their confidence. They could have a problem getting to their next position. I see it in many startups where sometimes you, you don't want to let go of people that were with you and were very successful in the previous phase of the company. And you're saying, oh, but I love this guy. He's great. He's smart. He's, He's amazing. He's done so much for us. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes you have to let go and say, okay, but for this next position, He's not going to uh, do well. You're not going to be happy, happy. As a result, you're both going to be frustrated. It will show they're not going to be happy. They're going to be leaving you frustrated and annoyed. And you'll probably harm their next uh, career path because they'll be coming out of failure and not success. So sometimes you have to be transparent and say, listen, I don't think you're the right person for the job and even help them. find their way elsewhere when it's the right time for them. Because sometimes they can be great at another startup at an earlier phase or just at a different position and not at the position that they think they want in your company. The biggest statement a company can make is a promotion. I think that speaks to the company's values more than anything you write on the wall. The people you promote, because the people within the company know what's going on. They identify what behaviors are being rewarded and what not. Is it political? Is it professional? Is it just opportunistic? Is it lazy? And they would make a judgment call. Regardless of if it's the right or wrong person, it's a huge statement from the company. And, and I think you're very right in saying 
let's try and promote from within. But when we can't, when we need new knowledge or when it's not the right person, you know, it's not set in stone. A company needs to do what's, uh, what's, what's good for the company. I also love what you're saying about how Israeli companies were being built for an exit and now they're being built for sustainability. And I think it speaks to the maturity of, of our ecosystem from back in the day where, you know, the app economy exploded and everyone became the COO of uh, something or the CEO of something. Now there's a lot of pride in professional management within companies. And I think that's largely to having a really strong, robust, C-suite layer of, of executives throughout the country who take the time to nurture and coach and train and build the next generations of manager. And, and I think in largely, uh, you know, there's some things to be, uh, to be owed uh, to you and your network. Now, if we can tap into your experience in that regard as well, hustle is fine, talent is fine, but there's also a, a unique skill that I think you possess in choosing the right startups to partner with. <laughs> so I know that your I know that your approach when working is plan ahead, get all the data, start getting simulations as to how can this uh, unfold. So you do that also when you're choosing your next roles. Yeah. Well, first of all, I luck has something to do with it. Okay, it's not that I have this uh, magic trick of of choosing the right companies. I was very fortunate uh, in my choices. But yeah, of course, uh, there, there are reasons for me to choose one company over the other. I think it starts with the founders believing that you can be part of that team and succeed with it. That's the first thing I look at. I mean, I, it's not enough to have a great idea. It's not enough uh, uh, to have great investors even. It's really important that when you go to war, and it's a war, right? You want to go to war with the right people. Um, so I think that that was the first thing that led me to choice. How do you mute the ego? When you look at a team and you see a company, you see some sort of an opportunity and then you're saying, can I succeed with them? How do you, how do you mute the ego that says, of course I can succeed in everything. I've seen so much. I'm... I, I think it's always teamwork. Startup uh, businesses really teamwork and you can only be successful as a team. One of the things I really tried to do and, and, I think I was very successful in doing it both in Fiverr and in Guesty is, is building that management team. Okay. So it's, it's coming on board with founders that you believe in, but then also building that team with them, building a, a team they can run with for years and, and scale and succeed. I think that's one thing. Uh, then I also want to really understand, uh, the product and the vision and understanding the total addressable market. I mean, you want to be, a part of something that could be big. You want to uh, be a part of something that's disruptive. I think what captured me both in in, in Fiverr and in Guesty was that there was a story to be told. There was disruption of a market. And I feel I can be so much more passionate about something that, that changes people's lives, changes its behaviors, changes how the world works in a certain sense. So with Fiverr, it was disrupting the the workforce, the way the way people work, and with Guesty, it's a disruption of uh, travel and hospitality on the one hand, and the real estate uh, market on the other hand, and where those two markets meet. And I found that to be very exciting. The, the that approach of people traveling in ways that weren't 
possible before, but also living in ways that weren't possible before. Think of the, the digital nomad, that the fact that you're not attached to property the way you were before. I'm smiling because in, in a large part of the work Eyal and I are doing with Startup Nightmares relies on, <laughs> on these two companies that you're involved with. We use uh, we use the freelance uh, the freelance marketplaces to uh, edit some of the episodes to do a lot of it and we're talking to you with from an Airbnb, so uh, in a large way you really are driving that uh, that uh, change in in generations within the workforce, which I find fascinating. And listening to you, I'm like, you sound like a venture capitalist who's assessing a company, not a candidate for an executive role. In a sense, you are a venture capitalist, okay? Some of your success is measured by equity, okay? And if I choose to invest my time in a company, just like an investor, I choose to invest in the equity of that company. And if I think that the chances of success are low, then I have to think twice, right? If I think that it's always a bet, right? You never know what's going to happen, but you want to choose a company and invest your time in a company that's worth your while, definitely. I'm sure that, you know, you get pitched a lot. Join here, do that, advise, become a board member. It means saying no to very powerful, very smart, very convincing people. How do you do that? There are two questions there. One is, I wasn't sure if you meant, how do I walk away from one company to the other? That's one question. And how do I say no to opportunity? Yeah, I, I do get a lot of of questions and, and, and offers, I try to choose, uh, even when advising companies, I, I will choose companies I really believe in. It's very similar to the decision to join a company. I need a founder that I believe in, that I, I feel that I want to support, that his or her success are important to me. I need to believe in the vision. I need to believe the company's even doing something good for society or right. Because otherwise, if you can invest your time and in you know a limited set of companies you want to make some kind of a positive impact on society so that that's definitely something i think of as well you said something we haven't heard here before and that's uh, i want to care about his or her uh, success personally i think that that um, personal connection this ability to empathize is a it's probably probably a big factor in being able to go through rough patches wanting to better that person's life. And it gets me to the point of asking about stakeholder management. How do you support the other executives as a COO? There's a lot of competing priorities within startups. The CEO wants to execute the vision and sometimes the other folks are, you know, they're dealing with their own legacy challenges, day to days. What advice would you give COOs to better support their stakeholders? Empathy and understanding other perspectives Whenever I talk to people, I really try to understand their perspective, their goals, and how I can help them, as well as reflect to them when I think those goals are not achievable, when I think there are roadblocks that they should be aware of. I do think, as I've mentioned, that as the COO, each VP's success is your success, okay? There's no competition. It is my role to help them get there, to mentor them, to remove those roadblocks for them, whether they report to me or not. I also take part in some mentorship programs where I try to help uh, uh, other founders uh, succeed in their roles. And it's with the same approach in mind as how do I 
help them think in different perspectives about a certain situation? How do I help them come up with a different approach? How can I help them even with, if it's connections and network and ideas and skills in order to succeed in what they're trying to achieve? That's very humble. So the way I picture it is you set a meeting with one of the VPs and you sit down and you're like, tell me about your world. What is going on? How can I be helpful? And you take that and basically that's your homework, making that person's job easier, better. I don't call it my homework, but I, I think it's, that's teamwork, right? It's helping each other. Sometimes they help me. Sometimes I help them. You make it sound a little too humble. Like I'm not just sitting there and saying, how can I be helpful? Great. No, sometimes I'm upset with certain things that are not happening. Sometimes I have criticism. Sometimes I tell them, listen, just doesn't make sense that you haven't reached this goal or we have to do something different here because it's, it doesn't seem to work. Sometimes I have to protect my department of, you know, listen, we really need to do X. You're not helping. How can we work this out? Uh, so it's not just about helping other people. I know it sounds great, but that, that's not all of it. But I do think that relationships and, and having the ability to look at situations from different perspectives is very important. The complexity you're describing is uh, you see things with such high resolution, such high definition. I don't know if there's a way to, uh, to gain that other than you know, being in the trenches and gaining experience. What are some resources that you've used throughout your career in order to get better, receive feedback, improve? First of all, it's all about people. It's, it's not being afraid to ask for help. It's consulting with people. When I took on my first role, I, I remember when... Um, As you've mentioned, I started as a lawyer. Uh, when I was at MediaMind, I was asked to take on the position of VP Global Operations in addition to my role as general counsel. And I'd never done operations before. It was not clear to me why they think I, I can do it. But I said, yeah, sure. What the hell? <laughs> and the first thing I've done is, is, is reach out to any VP operations I know and ask them about their role and their challenges and what they do and what the recommendations. I've read a lot about that role, about what it means and, and about processes and about systems and about everything that I thought related to, to that role. So it's, it's reading and talking and consulting and creating communities around you to help you. You mentioned that we didn't have all that digital engagement 20 years ago. But I always believed in people and communities. When I started my first role in, in tech company in Radware in, in 2000, I, I started joining forces with other general counsels and uh, took on a position in, in the board of the American Councils Associations of Israel. Okay, we had a charter for the Israeli general councils and created a, a charter of 400 uh, general councils in Israel And started holding events and having, you know, consulting with each other and helping each other out. And I think even back then, creating communities really helped, especially when I think the beauty of startups is that you're not really competing with anyone else, right? I don't mind helping other startups. They're not taking anything away from me by me giving them advice, by me helping them understand how to cope with different challenges, such as global expansion or payment processing or uh, implementing certain systems, or uh, hiring and firing. I, it doesn't take anything away from me. 
by helping uh, other companies. And I think that the tech community in Israel um, really grew stronger throughout the years. Now we have more digital tools to help us with that. But I think that culture of helping each other and being there for each other always existed in Israel. The mutual accountability part is, uh, I think, is, is one of the components of the Israeli secret sauce. And I want to use that as a segue to the other topic of conversation, which is women in tech, a topic you're uh, vocal and passionate about. And I want to ask you if you've seen a difference in companies who are managed by, by an equal ratio of men and female versus companies who are more um, homogenic in their composition. First of all, uh... I'm a big promoter of women in tech and promoter of diversity in general. It's not just about women. It's about uh, different races, religions, uh, uh, you name it. I, I really think that the more diverse a company is, the more voices uh, you hear and the more perspectives you have. And as I've mentioned, having multiple perspectives is key. I do see that when there's at least one female executive in a company, it leads eventually to hiring a more diverse uh, uh, workforce. And there's a lot of, uh, I don't want to drill into things that are quite obvious, but I think bias exists, right? And the more the ability of a more diverse team of hiring managers to hire a more diverse team of employees is, is by far better. So the more diverse you are, the more diverse you become in a sense. I think that there's also a different management style, a different... Uh, crisis management style. Uh, we see it now with the pandemic, you know, that there, if you look at social networks, a lot of people claim that countries led by women handled the pandemic way better than countries led by men. I can't wait for the research on that to actually come and, and be solidified. It's super, super intriguing. Yeah, there's also actually research solidifying the fact that companies with women on their boards do better than companies without women on their board. So th there, there is research about diversity impacting uh, the success of the business. For me, it's not just about the success of the business. It's, it's eventually about having that culture of, of equality and diversity and allowing different voices to be heard, whether it's in politics, in tech, and everywhere you go. I'd recommend anyone who listens or watches us to uh, follow you and see you've written quite extensively on that and you've really circled that challenge from affirmative actions to uh, geopolitical trends, the lack of opportunity, how, how a lack of opportunity early in the career, of course, prevents from uh, seeing more and more women in leadership roles. And it's a, it's a must read. We've covered it on, a, on various other episodes, so I won't go if deeper into that just to avoid repetition and also because you've already done the work of writing about it. We don't have a lot of time left, but I would love to hear your take about global expansion being such a, such a small market in Israel. In this season, we've already discussed in a few episodes how small Israel is and how it's an, it's an export-driven economy just because of the restraints of uh, the neighborhood in which we do business. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned that with Gesti, you've, uh, you guys have expanded into eight territories within a year. Walk us through the process of global expansion. First of all, I've, I've done global expansion in previous companies as well. So there's, I'd say, a certain playbook to it. But it really differs between companies 
and the goals you're trying to achieve with global expansion. I, I don't think you should have global expansion just for the sake of it. That even the fact that you're an Israeli company and it's a small market doesn't mean that you should expand globally. If you're a commerce, uh, a, a kind of an e-commerce consumer-based company, you don't necessarily need the offices you would need in an enterprise software company where you actually need to be there physically, meet customers, maybe even have like a, a face-to-face onboarding process if it's a very complex system. So it really dif- differs between the different companies and the different products. Uh, at Guesty specifically, we started expanding when we uh, moved up market from a more SMB product to an enterprise product. So for SMB, we had inside sales all in Israel. Marketing was, you know, a lot of it was virtual and going to conferences, and we really didn't need that local presence. But when you get to big customers that pay you a lot of money per year, yes, they want to have a meeting. They want to see who you are. Uh, they want to have sometimes personal training, onboarding. Uh, they want to have customer success in their region, in their language. And that's really what led us uh, to that global expansion. And it was uh, working with our uh, strategy team to capturing uh, the total addressable market per region, understanding what region are big enough in terms of total addressable markets and have the right needs for uh, in-person teams in order to make the decision. So it was a very informed decisions uh, with a lot of research behind it per territory, including which territory to open first and which second and which third. So there was a period last year that you went on from working in two time zones, say Israel and the U.S., investors and stuff, to working in multiple. All of a sudden you're operating, you said, in Australia, Manila? Yeah, by the way, Australia, we have our... our wonderful managing director of, of, of APAC, uh, Yoav, who sits in Sydney. We have a managing director of uh, the Americas sitting in New York, Omar. Uh, and management meetings have become uh, more challenging in terms of time zones. Someone has to wake up very early. Someone needs to stay up really late because really the combination of, of Australia, US and Israel Oof. is quite impossible. But we make do. <laughs> Did you ever come across a capacity situation where, you know, you were available 14 hours out of the day to do work and now, you know, there's, there's businesses running 24-7 and there's, there's, it's office hours in some territory you're operating at. How did you manage that? Uh, first of all, I was always kind of a 24-7 person. I don't sleep a lot. I go to bed really, really late, like around 2 to 30 a.m., I've always done it. I always worked with the U.S., California, and it will always required me to uh, to stay up pretty late. It's really about managing your time correctly, not you know, not doing what you don't have to do at a time where you don't have to do it. Take the breaks that you need. For me, for example, it was always very important to leave seven to nine p.m. free as much as possible because it's my time with the kids to have supper together bedtime stories. That was really important to me. So I, I planned my day around that. I think everyone should plan their day around their limitations and their priorities. That could include home, right? It doesn't have to include only work. I really encourage everyone, my employees and others, to understand what 
their priorities are and and fit their schedule to those priorities. There these uh, last 75 minutes or so, I mean, it's a masterclass in expertise and the intersection of, of needing to be in the trenches and being able to adopt a more strategic, wholesome view. Uh, I know this will go a long way in servicing our community of listeners and viewers. And before we wrap up, I was, I was wondering if there's anything we haven't discussed that you feel is fundamental to understanding the role of the COO, the current state of affairs in scale-ups, or anything else you'd like to bring to the table. I think there's so much to say. Uh, <laughs> and and I had so many amazing experiences uh, during my career that I'm, I'm really thankful for. I really think that if I have to, to, to say it in a couple of words, it's really about being agile and receptive to changes in environments, in products, in people, in the competitive landscape, just being very attentive to the world around you and the changes that happen every day. Speaking of education of future generations, you are also the co-author of a children's book, and you've co-authored the book with maybe the most prominent uh, children's book author, Dvora Omer. She was not writing as much when you approached her with the idea. So talk to us a little bit about <laughs> that story. Actually, that was her last book, wow. the book she wrote with me. It's a very interesting family story. My father's a child psychologist, and he's written several books with Romer Omer uh, when I was a child. Actually, one of the stories is about Vered, and it's about me, Vered, standing in front of a mirror. But uh, So you're the, you're the hero of that story? Yeah. <laughs> By the way, Ron, her son, is also an amazing talent, just uh, released a, a doc, a film about her life, and I really recommend everyone to watch it. She was really an amazing person. So my father uh, always, after they've written a few books together, he always felt that there was this age of two to four that really wants to, to, to read and don't have enough stories to that age. And she said to him, listen, my, my kids are too old and even my grandchildren are too old and I don't feel I can really relate to that age anymore. And then he suggested that since I'm a young mother with, with kids that age, maybe I can, you know, brainstorm with her around it. And it, we, we had some conversations. And then she said, why don't you just write what you think and, and, and we'll see. And I brought my stories and then she said, but those are great. Like you don't need me to write them. You just wrote them. Then what? And, and I still wanted to publish the, the book together. So she brought some stories of her stories and, uh, I've written the majority of the stories in the book and, and we published it together. And, and for me, it was an opportunity to do something very different and creative and, and also make an impact because uh, if, if you, you probably didn't, I don't know if you read stories to, to little children, but I tried to bring some of the values such as diversity and, and equality and acceptance to that book. So in small things, like there is, there's a story about two kids playing family, you know, those kindergarten and they like they have an argument who's going to be the the mom and who's going to be the daughter. And eventually they come up with a family with two mothers. And for me, that was a way of saying everything should be accepted and embraced. It doesn't have to be the classic family. And there are other examples, but I really try to even add women empowerment to to those stories to start education at a younger age, which basically is what I believe we need to do 
right? To start young and, and educate for a better future. You had probably a lot of excuses to not follow through with this initiative. A lot of meetings, a lot of time, clearing your schedule to do creative, deep work. It's not, it's not manager time where you respond, solve, do. How did that become a priority in, in, in your world? It was pretty crazy. I, I, I wrote mainly in the nighttime, like 1, 2 a.m., stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, it was... Uh... You finish your day, you close your laptop, it's midnight, and you open it again, and now you're putting the, the, the creative hat on, and you start writing. Exactly. The, which is probably why I only published one book. I'm actually working on my second one for about two years now, and I'm just not getting enough time to, to finish it. I hope I will eventually. Is it a children's book? <laughs> yeah. Can you write the, also the COO playbook as well, well, well for the third book? I have written about the COO role. I don't know if you saw it, but I wrote on Medium uh, an article that I think got a, got a lot of feedback about it, ex- including from COOs telling me, thank you, I finally can explain to people what it is I'm doing. <laughs> 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 the best advice is that there is no playbook, right? You have to follow your path, your road, uh, your values. And I think that when you're passionate and believe in what you're doing, you have a good chance of being successful. What a beautiful note to end with. Thank you so, so much for coming on to the show. We'll make sure to direct our listeners to the guest websites and to your Medium channel and LinkedIn, where they can find a ton of valuable uh, reading material. Vered, thank you so, so much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 